Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney. Ben Baldanza and I are going to toast the queen of the skies, the Boeing 747, by talking with Boeing historian Michael Lombardi about all the amazing things that iconic and important airplane stands for. This is literally the end of the assembly line for the 747. Next week, Boeing will deliver the last 747 to cargo carrier Atlas Air. But before that bittersweet goodbye to the first jumbo jet, we have a lot of news to talk about. I claim responsibility for some of that news, Ben. I created the Wall Street Journal's annual airline rankings, and I think they tell an interesting story each year, including this year. Ben, I bet you have some thoughts on airline rankings. I do have thoughts on airline rankings. Some are good and some maybe not so good. What I like about the rankings is I think it's great to hold any industry accountable for their performance to consumers. And I think that's great. I think it's good that we have metrics that we report on regularly. And the Wall Street Journal, thanks to you, Scott, does a great job of putting those rankings out around things people care about. Are my flights on time? Is my bag delivered with me? Things like that. The thing that continue to frustrate me about these kind of rankings, Scott, is that the way the Department of Transportation measures on time just doesn't really relate to what consumers really see because it measures airplane on time, not consumer on time. You know, I do a fun little thing with my class each semester I say, pretend there you could fly one of two airlines. On one airline, every flight is exactly 15 minutes late. And on the other airline, 90% of their flights are right on time. But if you're delayed, you're delayed by four hours. Which one would you rather take? And they always say, I'll take the airline that's always 15 minutes late. And then I remind them that that airline would have a 0% on time and the other airline would have a 90% on time. (laughs) And it gets to the point that how late you are matters other than just being late. Most customers It doesn't change what they're going to do if the flight arrives 10, 15, 20 minutes late. I'm not saying that airlines should get away with that and they shouldn't be held accountable to that. But it's very different than when the flight's delayed for four or five or six hours. So when we put up rankings that rank on time, but don't talk about if you're delayed, how much are you delayed? I think that misses something. That's not a complaint about what the Wall Street Journal does, Scott, because they're using metrics that are well understood 
have been used for a long time and that the U.S. government produces. But I do think it'd be good to put pressure on the DOT to maybe augment that. You know, it'd be nice to know if you're delayed on United, your average delay is 28 minutes. And if you're delayed on American, it's 42 minutes. And I just made those numbers up. I don't know if that's true, (laughs) but you you get my point. Yeah, I totally appreciate your point. I I agree. Um, I was very frustrated with on-time numbers themselves and and did several things. We we stopped using the DOT numbers because um, very good third-party vendors that that, um, are used by airlines actually uh, can give you on-time uh, for the the marketing carrier. So you can include regional jet flights. And to the consumer, I don't think it matters if it's a, if it's a United Express or United or Eagle or American. So I was I was really proud when we did that. And and more specifically to your point, I included uh, ranking data that we could get, but measures that nobody else had used before. And one was what we called extreme delays. Uh, which are really just uh, delays longer than 45 minutes. So, and it has equal weight to the DOT set 15 minute on time rate. So in that case, if you are an airline that habitually runs really long delays, then you do get dinged in our rankings. And the other thing I included to try and emphasize that was two hour tarmac delays. You know, three hours is is the measure for fines. Though DOT regulation um, starts penalizing airlines uh, for three-hour tarmac delays or longer, but the Bureau of Transportation Statistics actually has all tarmac delays, and so you can go into their system and create uh, a list of two-hour tarmac delays. and And I did that, created that um, as part of the on-time things. So we actually don't have one on-time ranking. We have three elements of the seven in the rankings. And that was really to capture exactly what you were talking about, of the frustration of, um, well, if it's 16 minutes or it's six hours, there's a big difference there. That's fantastic, Scott. I didn't realize that you had added those things. And it goes to how consumer-centric your middle seat column was and, you know, by extension of that, how those rankings have evolved because those are the things that really do matter to people. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, we we also only stuck to whatever data we could get. We didn't try and ever measure how friendly the flight attendants were, how cushy the pillows were in business class or anything like that. It was all strictly based on data. But Ben, let's start with some provocative comments again from United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. United reported fourth quarter earnings last week, and like Delta and American, United said demand remains strong. But Kirby also said that the industry isn't prepared for the post-pandemic future. I thought this was really interesting. He cited the captain shortage at regional airlines and said that's changing the industry, Labor shortages in general, such as mechanics and air traffic controllers, are continuing to have an impact. Kirby noted that technology is inadequate at many airlines. That's eyes on you, Southwest. But I think he's also saying it's not just Southwest. And he pointed out that delays at Boeing and Airbus are a very serious reality. 
and costs are going up. And so what Scott said was, you can't run your airline like it's 2019 or you will fail. What do you think, Ben? Is he right? I think he's exactly right, actually. Everything he referenced is different and does mean that airlines have to think about how they're going to manage themselves differently. Now, I saw him on TV this week, and he made an interesting statement about technology. He said, all airlines, except the large network airlines, need a big technology upgrade. So I thought that was really interesting. He was kind of saying, well, we at United don't need that, but everybody else needs that. And I just thought that was kind of funny. But he's right. Technology is inadequate at many airlines. Delays at Boeing and Airbus are a serious reality. I take a little different view on that than Scott might though, and that I think that's actually helping the industry for 2023 specifically. This is an industry, Scott, Scott McCartney, I mean, that can't help itself from putting seats out for sale if they're available, even if that destabilizes price or puts price pressure in the industry. The industry had higher fares especially in the second half of 2022. That's what pulled many airlines into their first profitable quarter in a long time in the fourth quarter of 2022. And destroying that in 2023 would be a bad thing. So the fact that Boeing and Airbus are having a hard time delivering planes in the short term might actually protect the industry from putting too much capacity out. Now, I agree with Scott Kirby that it's a serious reality when you think about the next five years, is the industry going to be able to keep up with demand? He might be thinking especially of big wide-body airplanes, since that's where a lot of the delays are. But specifically for the next 12 months, I think that may help the industry. But overall, I really agree with what he said and agree with the statement that if you run your airline like it's 2019, you will fail. I would also say if you run your airline like it's 2021, you will fail too, because demand is different, cost structures are different, and depending on what happens with consolidation and the rulings going on, even the structure of the industry could be changing. Yeah, I think I thought Scott's comments were fascinating. I also think it's interesting how Scott Kirby has has really sort of become uh, the the lead CEO of the industry, if you will, uh, kind of the outspoken in a Bob Crandall uh, sort of way. Scott's always been unafraid to uh, really speak his mind. And um, and he's saying some really interesting things that I think other airlines need to pay attention to. I agree. Maybe we should have a weekly, this week, Scott Kirby's provocative comment <laughs> was. <laughs> I like that. I like that. We'll have a Scott segment. <laughs> so this week's Scott segment, we'll deal with the Wall Street Journal version of the airline performance uh, scorecard. I have to say, Ben, uh, just personally, I'm very proud of this, and I'm very proud that the journal has continued it. 
uh, after I, I left. Um, I helped them get going with it, uh, the folks who, who took it over after I left. It's, it's very complicated to do. It's a ton of hours, a ton of work, um, a great involvement from the graphics people, the data people. It's a, it's a big effort to produce it. So I've just been thrilled that they've continued it for the second time since, uh, since I was doing it. And, and this year, um, it showed it in 2022, uh, Delta was still on top and JetBlue was still on the bottom. American was well below Delta and United, but not on the bottom as it had been in the past. Uh, discounters Frontier and Spirit were down in the bottom third with JetBlue. The rankings, as we talked about, are really focused on reliability, on time and cancellation rates, the long delays we talked about, the two-hour tarmac delays, but also baggage handling complaints and bumping. And speaking of bumping, it's gone up. And that was interesting because the industry had really been pushing to reduce that. I think it's a, a result of the turbulent year in air travel that we saw last year with planes getting swapped and cancellations piling up. So I'm curious, did you have any reaction to this year's rankings specifically? Yeah, I thought they were fascinating and they suggested some trends that are more than just a one-year trend, I think. Delta, as we've talked about before on the show, and as you know, Scott, does sort of run their operation differently than American United by using generally an older fleet and maybe not stressing them as much, meaning not putting as much utilization on the planes, which means they have quicker recovery and more recovery. And they've really prided themselves on fewest cancellations, running on time, and trying to really be reliable by sort of leveraging the fact that they have a a financial advantage relative to their competitors in their cost of aircraft capital. And I think that's continuing this year. And Delta is showing maybe a better way to do it for everyone. And I think that's good. The issues about the smaller carriers, and I'd put Frontier Spirit and JetBlue all in this category, and listeners know I'm on the board of JetBlue, but None of those carriers have the broad scope of network that American United and Delta have. So problems in airline operations and reliability are not evenly distributed across the U.S. geography. There's more delays around New York than there are around Kansas City, right? And and things like that. And so when you When you are comparing everyone to sort of a national standard, you get to sort of what is the geography of a spirit or a frontier of a JetBlue and how does that affect him? It might be nice, for example, a further enhancement to these rankings, although it would just add more work and I won't, don't expect the Wall Street Journal to do this, is You really want to know how does that airline do where they fly against other airlines where they fly, right? And that may or may not tell the same story as looking on a full country level. Yeah, I think that's a good point. 
I, I'll talk about JetBlue um, because I, I had a, a, a really interesting talk with JetBlue after my last rankings came out and they were on bottom. Uh, and, and, you know, JetBlue will say, well, we're, we're in New York. Um, so, of course, we're going to run later than other airlines. And I don't accept that. I, I don't buy that. Um, yes, you're, you're, you're based in New York. You're heavy in New York. You're, you're heavy in Florida. And Florida certainly had its share of problems um, this, this past year in particular. But you know that. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't run on time. And the interesting comparison is Delta, um, because Delta is heavy in New York and it runs on time. Delta is heavy in Atlanta and it's the busiest airport in the world and Delta runs on time. And so I think, and it's not all just adding block time to it. Um, there are lots of things that you can do in the operation, lots of ways to run the airline, uh, so that you you have a stronger on time culture, you have you have more tools, uh, more capability to deal with delays. Um, it may be you know sometimes it's spare parts inventory, or availability of mechanics, or availability of spare airplanes. Or I mean, all those things are expensive, no doubt. But if you're going to be based in New York, uh, you got to deal with New York, and I'm not sure that can always be an excuse for why you run late. You know, I agree with that, Scott. Let me tell you uh, another Gordon Bethune story, if I can. When I first got to Continental in the mid-1990s, Newark was sort of the reason the airline couldn't do anything well. It was the reason we couldn't run on time. It was the reason we couldn't be nice to customers, you know, all kinds of things. And Gordon sort of put that on its head and said, what's wrong with having a hub in the biggest air city in the, in the world? And got everyone thinking that Newark should be the reason Continental succeeds, not the reason it fails. And that mindset really changed Continental. And that's what regional airlines with regional networks need to think. Not my region is a reason I can't compete, but it's the reason I can be strong. And how do I make that happen? And you're right. It's not just block time. It's everything about how you launch the system, how you schedule the system, how you train people, all kinds of things. The other thing, Scott, that I want to bring up from your initial conversation is the bumpings due to fleet swaps. You know, it's interesting when passengers are bumped from planes, often the media immediately jumps to overbooking as the reason that happens. But you said exactly the right thing, and airlines have said this, that a big piece of what caused the bumpings in 2022 were fleet swaps. Maybe you have 180 seat scheduled but by the time that flight flies, the plane that flies it is a 150-seat plane. So all of a sudden, you have 30 fewer seats, so passengers get bumped. That's not an overbooking issue, and I think the airlines need to be very clear about that. Otherwise, they run some risk of maybe future legislation or regulation around overbooking, which really the overbooking-related bumpings weren't worse this year than they've been in the past. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And and I think the other interesting point about uh, bumping it is it's really become just a money issue. It's it you can buy your way out of bumping, um, and that's exactly what Delta does. Uh, it, Delta is very can be very generous with its offers for people to voluntarily give up their seats, and they do. And I think Delta's kind of conditioned customers to accept that and and be happy um, with a Best Buy gift card or, or something really useful to them, not necessarily a, a $200 voucher for a future flight. Um, Delta is giving out things that people really want in amounts that that do get volunteers. Um, and other airlines have started to pick up on this. Um, it, it can be more expensive, uh, certainly more expensive, but in, in terms of customer service, if, if you want to eliminate bumping, uh, that's that's how you do it. Um, and I think that's a lesson that, that airlines are starting to learn as well. Well, good discussion, Scott. You know, Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com sustainability. And thanks also to Sidley Austin. Sidley Austin is the go-to law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com slash aviation for more information. So, Ben, a couple other of news items of note I thought would be interesting to include. Uh, first, a company called Zero Avia flew a 19-seat Dornier 228 powered by hydrogen. It was by no means the first hydrogen-powered flight. I think that dates back to 1957, but it was the largest commercial plane so far. As you know, Airbus is betting big on hydrogen-powered flight. Our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney, is working on a big hydrogen-fueled engine. There's a lot of progress here, but hydrogen-powered short-haul regional airplanes are still more than a decade away. And Ben, a personal pet peeve of mine, the Southwest Pilots Union got some pub this week for announcing they plan to vote on a possible strike later this year. Not that they took a vote, but they're thinking about it. Even strike votes at airline unions are basically toothless. Pilots can't strike unless released from mediation and released now from presidential intervention. As we saw with railroads, Congress can and will impose contract terms under the Railway Labor Act. So planning a vote or taking a vote is simply to use publicity to pressure management and scare away customers. It's not news and it shouldn't be taken as big news. I, I fault the media here. Um, we need to be smarter about what's important and what's not. Do you agree? I do agree with that, Scott, but I also think it's effective by the unions to scare customers. And when you scare customers, that scares the airlines. But you know, if you ask 100 people on the street, what's the Railway Labor Act, and one of them knows it, that might be a surprise, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so 
they read or they hear or they see strike at Southwest. They just see those two terms together, strike Southwest or strike American or something. And that can drive behavior. And pilot unions know that. That's why they do this. And so it probably does increase their leverage when they do it. I agree with you that the media is somewhat complicit by carrying that message when it doesn't mean that much. But I think pilots are going to keep doing that because it works. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now something really special for us. Few people know more about aviation history and airplanes than our next guest. We're very excited to talk about the Boeing 747 with Boeing's historian, Michael Lombardi. Michael started at Boeing in 1979 and has been senior corporate historian for more than two decades. He manages the company's archives, is a regular contributor to Boeing's magazine, and has published a book on strategic air power. He's appeared in numerous documentaries and TV shows, and I'm not sure there's anyone better to talk about um, really the, the bittersweet uh, day as we celebrate the 747, and, but as we also say goodbye, uh, at least in terms of uh, new airplanes coming out of the factory. So, Michael, let's start with some facts and figures. The, the first flight of the 747 was in 1969, almost 54 years ago. Yeah. Over that time, how many have been built? What are your favorite facts and figures about it? Oh, goodness. Well, it, yeah, it has yeah, February 9th, so we're uh, very close to that anniversary of the first flight and also very close to the anniversary in, uh, of the uh, first service, which was January 22nd. So since that time, there have been over 1,500 747s delivered, and uh, it has been a favorite of airlines. What, what's uh, it, well, favorite of passengers as well. But what's really interesting is that when the airplane came out, speaking of airlines, is that it was the must-have airplane. And there were airlines who bought 747s, ordered 747s, took delivery of them, and then couldn't figure out how to use them. But it was it was the must-have airplane. It was a flagship airplane. And so that was really a testament to this, this uh, just this incredible, incredible airplane. Well, Mike, the 747 is Boeing's and likely will stay Boeing's most iconic airplane, at least for a while. It was called the Queen of the Skies. Why do you think that airplane took on such a monumental status? Yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons. Of course, just the uh, that iconic shape with the hump, it, it's very recognizable. But uh, it's also it's been uh, it's been recognized as a as a work of art, a beautiful piece of architecture. It is something that that captures our imagination, and it also inspires us. I think that that's what really is is what captures the imagination. That we we look at that giant airplane, that giant seven forty seven, that beautiful piece work of art, that intersection of great engineering and art. And it, it really, it inspires us. It reminds us that, that we, we do amazing things with, uh, we put our, our hearts into it, the, the knowledge that we have, the brain power, the skills that we, if we bring all this together, work as a team and just set our minds to doing something that, that people say can't be done. 
when we do that, we tend to do amazing things. And I'll say incredible in recognition of the team that the Incredibles have built this airplane, that we do incredible things. And I think that that's what really what cap with the 747, what it represents. Yeah, it's such a great point. And we'll talk more about the engineering, but um, yeah. The design, the 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 shape. Uh, when any time a, a seven forty seven pitches up, it just looks so regal. I just think it, it's it's so attractive and and just just amazing. The airplane changed aviation in in so many ways. Changed travel in in many ways. What what do you think are the lasting legacies in terms of air travel? Yeah, and I think that well, and that absolutely, I believe is what will continue that that the 747 will continue throughout the future it'll it'll continue to be history for uh you know, well into the future because of that how i usually frame it is that the, you see throughout history this really persistent this this dream of flight that you see uh, from back into the, you go back to ancient times with uh, with the ancient Greeks, Daedalus and Icarus, and you see this reoccurring theme, this persistent dream to fly. And finally, in 1903, the Wright brothers make that achievement. But yet, from that point on, it, it was very exclusive. Only a very you know, handful of people flew at first, and it, it slowly increased. But there wasn't a point until the 747. When everyone, anyone on planet Earth, anywhere on the globe could get on a 747 and fly. So that is the legacy of this incredible airplane, that it was the first time in history that, that all of humanity could take wings. And so it, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful place for it to have. And, and that will certainly secure this airplane. Uh, throughout, throughout the in, well into the future, where it'll continue to be a uh, very important piece of of human history. I totally agree with that, and I bet we're going to see him flying for a couple of decades more too. Remind us how this airplane came to be. Was it originally designed as a cargo airplane, and is that what inspired the Hump? Right. When we talk about the beginning of the 747, it, we really just go back just a couple years to the, the beginning of the jet age. And this this really, uh, this wonderful partnership between the Boeing Company and Pan American Airways, in particular, the leaders of the two companies, Juan Tripp of Pan Am and Bill Allen, this uh, the really brilliant CEO of Boeing. It was that partnership that together they they worked out launching the 707, putting the 707 into service and being the 707 being the first successful commercial jet. Of course, the British Comet was the first commercial jet. But it was that partnership, uh, Boeing and Pan Am, that launched, that really launched the, um, the jet age. And the 707 was able to, to start to democratize flight. More and more people were able to fly and with that, the airport started to get a little bit full. The gates were full. There wasn't a lot of parking for 707s. And so one trip, Pan Am came back to Boeing and said, you know, we need a bigger airplane, probably something twice the size of a 707 to take on this, this load. 
And with that, they, it, basically what Pan Am wanted is they said, we, maybe we just build a double-decker, take two 707s and put them on top of each other. Maybe that'll work. And, but, but Boeing, uh, well, they, we've, we've got a different idea. And so these two gentlemen, Juan Tripp and Bill Allen, started talking back and forth. And Bill Allen said, well, Juan, if, if, you, um, if you buy this airplane, we'll go ahead and build it. And Juan Tripp said to Bill Allen, he said, well, if you build it, we'll buy it. And so that started, that started this adventure of designing this airplane. Really, they, they thought, okay, we've got to make an airplane that's twice the size, maybe even bigger than that existing airplane, the 707. And so, again, the, the first thought was to uh, make a double-decker. And, and that idea was quickly discounted. It was rejected because they're, especially the chief of the design team, uh, Joe Sutter, said that that, that idea was, and quote unquote, that was just a stupid idea. The, the, the reason his concern was that it wasn't safe, that they couldn't get the passengers off that upper deck. And you know, they, his thought was that passengers are going to look out that from that upper deck, set what, all that uh, several stories up in the air, and they're going to say, no, I'm not going down that slide. So the other concern, too, is just the, the distance that between the doors, the escape doors also. So there was just didn't want to build that. So here comes this moment of innovation, of, of invention, this discovery where they, you know, what can we do? And the idea comes up, let's make a wide fuselage. Let's go 20 feet wide. Let's put two aisles in there. And there you have it. The twin aisle wide body jet is discovered. So that is how this airplane goes forward. They, they pitch it to Pan Am. Pan Am agrees to this airplane, uh, this big airplane, this big fuselage. And just a brilliant moment uh, occurred where Joe Sutter and his team, knowing that the future of aviation, which was being built right, right at, uh, at another building at Boeing, that future, the supersonic transport, they knew that that airplane was going to be the future of flight. That once passengers had the opportunity to, to go Mach 2.5 and get to their destination in a third of the time than it would on a 747, passengers wouldn't fly those subsonic jets any longer. It would be all supersonic. So with that, uh, Joe and his team knew that this airplane, if, if it was going to have some legs, it, its future would be as a freighter. And so they designed into that original design, the, 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 uh, making this airplane the best freighter. It could be an excellent freighter. And so their idea was that the easiest way, the best way to load freight, like you see on the military planes, is the nose lifts up and you put the uh, freight through the nose into the fuselage. And they thought, that's what we're going to do with the 747. But one problem that they had was, where do you put the flight deck? If you lift up the nose, the flight deck is right there. So how do we get it out of the way? And so what they decided on was putting the flight deck on top of the fuselage. And with that, that famous 747 hump is born. And so that's, uh, and that's how it all started. That's such a great story. It's, um, it's amazing how they were so right about um, so many things. You mentioned the design breakthroughs, but were there particular engineering or aerodynamic breakthroughs that, that enabled that wide body to, to get off the ground? 
Yeah, that's that's one of the thing. One of the interesting things is that a lot of people thought that this airplane was too big. That it would. They they said it was impossible. It wasn't going to be able to fly. It was so big. But Boeing had been working on on uh, airplane structures, especially jet structures, what we called fail safe structures, with the seven hundred seven because there was that. Uh, you know, the, with the with the comet, there was some the the accidents that the comet had where the airplane had the structural failures. Boeing had to convince the airlines and the public that that would not happen on a Boeing jet. That was all part of that was foundational to starting the jet age was was proving that that wouldn't happen in the future. And so a lot of that structural work really started, like I said, just a few years before the 747, started with the 707. And so Boeing had a good foundation for structures. But what really changed with the 747 is you had to scale this up. But the other realization was this airplane is big and it carries a lot of passengers. And it just, you you have to, we, they, they knew that they had to make sure this airplane was the safest airplane ever built. What really changed is they started every day of the, the design team started every day. And this is what Joe Sutter would preach to them, that the number one thing is safety. We can't have, we, we, we just can't have an accident with this big airplane. And so what really what was built into this airplane that was new and unique were the, um, all these incredible safety features, double redundant systems were were common at the time. But Joe Sutter went for quadruple redundancy, especially in the the hydraulic systems. And you saw other safety features. If you notice on the rudder of a 747, the rudders split. There's actually two of them. So if one fails, you still have rudder control. And that was also true for the other control surfaces. So you had that redundancy and control. One of the uh, features of the 747 are those uh, giant landing gear. You have 16 main wheels underneath that 747. And the airplane can actually land on just two two of those sets of landing gear. So you have those extra landing gear to um, they provide safety as, as well as, as it gives the airplane one of the softest landings of any commercial jet ever. So that was another feature that... that uh, that they put into it. But one of the things that, that came out with the 747 as well is new, the new technology of the high bypass engine that is now fundamental to commercial aviation today. Those giant those giant jet engines that, that we see on our, our jets today, the 747 was the first commercial airplane. And actually that technology made it possible to build that giant airplane. Uh, at first, General Electric built those engines for the United States Air Force and the C-5 Galaxy, the first plane to have that. But that technology allowed Boeing to to even consider building this giant airplane. You had to have the engines that could power that giant. I think that there's a pretty good summary of some of the, the technology that, that went into that airplane early on. It's a great summary. You know, Mike, the first time I flew on this airplane was on a Pan Am flight from Miami to Buenos Aires. And I remember distinctly on the takeoff roll from Miami, we were just going and going and going. And I looked at my wife and said, I hope we don't run out of runway. (laughs) And 
It always seemed on takeoff to be moving too slow to get this huge machine in the air. But on final approach, it looked almost like a swan coming in for, you know, a beautiful approach. Do you think it was designed to look that great or was that just icing on the cake? Yeah, you know, it, it, and I know exactly what, what you mean. It, it took, when the airplane first started flying here in, in the Puget Sound area around Seattle, when they were doing the test flights, the um, people would pull off of the freeway, on the side of the freeway, uh, and, and whatever highway they're on, if the airplane was flying over, they would pull over just to watch it. Because of that, everybody would say, it's hanging in the air. It's not moving. And it's it's a bit of an optical illusion. It's just because of the size of the airplane that it looks like it's not moving. But that that was a very common observation. But the airplane does have this again going back to this uh, the beauty and great engineering that this airplane has such a it is such a work of art and that it you know, when it's coming in at an angle with its nose high it just it really does and I agree it has a regal appearance. And I think that's part of why it's called the queen of the skies. It does have a very regal appearance. And I remember uh, uh, waiting waiting for uh, my flight in a 747 and in the British Airways lounge looking out over the airport and saw the airplane coming down the taxiway. And it almost seems like all the other airplanes paused and took a bow. It just the airplane has such a regal appearance. It is majestic. And I don't think that you'll find anybody who doesn't agree with that. That's so true. I'm curious as a historian, how, how do you think historians will remember the the airplane um, f- for bringing travel to the masses, for shrinking the world or or for that grace and splendor that we were just talking about? I would say all of those things. Uh, down the road, it would go decades into the future, and when people do get together and talk about the great airplanes, I kind of like we, what we would do today. We'd look back and say, "Hey, what are those great airplanes in the past?" And you know, the Lockheed Connie, the Boeing Flying Fortress, the DC three, uh, the Mustang, the P fifty one Mustang. We we still remember these planes that are you know, many of them are, are you know been out of production for decades and decades and and this will be true about the 747 it'll be remembered it'll it'll be recalled for those things that that we've talked about that this is the airplane that made it possible for all of humanity to fly it gave wings to humanity and as you say it shrunk the world it brought us all closer together it's also the airplane that it really not only brought passengers to uh, people together but because of its ability to carry freight, this amazing ability to carry so much freight that it's, it changed the economy of around the world to think about it, that, that uh, farmers in, in East Africa that grow flowers can put them on a 747, ship them to Europe in the middle of winter so there can be fresh flowers in Europe. And now those farmers have, their, their living is, their, their, uh, you know, their, the, their livelihoods are, are increased. Their their lives are improved because of this and those sorts of stories around the world. So this airplane, it changed the world. It changed the economy. It made it so we can get together and 
and world leaders flew this airplane because of its majestic appearance. So it'll be remembered for that. And it'll also be remembered as the queen of the sky. I don't ever, I don't see that name ever being adopted again for another airplane. This airplane, just because of that, as we, as we mentioned, that, that appearance, that regal appearance and what it's accomplished, that it will forever be the queen of the skies. And that is something that's going to bring this airplane up in conversations, I will say, forever. You're right about that for sure. Now, the design and building of a new airplane is a huge venture with lots of risks. And I imagine building this airplane that was, you know, done in spades. So do you think the 747 was a financially successful plane? You said you sold 1,500 of them, which seems like a good amount. But was it great for Boeing because the plane itself made money or just created such a splash for Boeing to help them sell their other models? Right. Well, that's the thing to remember. This was the primary model for Boeing for so long, along with our 737. And this airplane, oh, it it, it was... Uh, it, it was in in uh, the long run. It was a financial success, of course. Like you mentioned at the beginning, as I said, a lot of people said this airplane uh, couldn't fly; that uh, it was impossible to fly. And there were other people said that financially, this airplane won't fly either. And it took a lot of work by the leadership at Boeing, at Bill Allen, to to secure the financing and keep this airplane going. And this, at that time at Boeing, there was, you think about it, we had uh, a number of new airplane programs. The commercial airplanes were new. The 707 had only gone into service just uh, a few years before the 747, actually just six years before the 747 had, uh, they started the design work on the airplane. And so with all these programs going on in the supersonic transport, the Apollo program, there was a lot of strain on, on Boeing. Uh, and its success was, as it turns out, was, was pretty, pretty expensive. So the 747 and securing finance for this development, it ultimately did contribute to, to the downturn of the company in the early 70s. But with all that cost uh, all the design costs and that launch costs having finally been recouped, you get to a point where this airplane is a money maker. And for us at Boeing, this and in our local community, this airplane sustained thousands and thousands of, of employees and their jobs and put their kids through college. Boeing contributed to the local community uh, with, with because of this airplane. We were able to. Uh, to do so many contributions to, you know, the Boeing employees contributed to uh, their their fund, the largest in the world. The company was able to to uh, support education and and uh, support veterans and all sorts of other activities based on what this airplane did. So it wasn't just uh, money coming back to to Boeing, but this is money that that went through. Boeing to the employees, to the local community, and to the greater world. So you could say that the 747 not just you know, physically gave back to the world and, and was a historic airplane, but but the uh, the financial achievement of this airplane also gave back to the world. Uh, so I, 
I'd say it was a it was a great, a very good success for Boeing, especially when a program that um, for an airplane that was built to last, and um, it was certainly also a very good uh, money maker for the for the customers who flew this airplane as well. It was a very successful airplane for them. It's fascinating. You mentioned before when uh, Joe Sutter thought that uh, a double deck airplane was a was a stupid idea. Um, there may be some people at Airbus in hindsight who would agree with that, but I'm, I'm curious when when Airbus introduced the A380, uh, how did that affect the thinking at Boeing? Well, and that it, I don't think it really did because we were on a different course. The uh, media and, and aviation enthusiasts and other people that followed the business, they had gotten into this mode of whenever Air, you know, prior to Airbus, it was Douglas. But there's when Boeing or Douglas would build an airplane, the, the other one would have to come out with the same airplane and there would be this head to head competition. And that kind of continued with Airbus. So when Airbus announced the A380, there was a lot of expectation that Boeing would come out with a, a giant double decker. But things had already changed at Boeing. The seeds had been planted for what would eventually be the airplane that would replace the 747. Boeing had had seen that the future, and this is what really happened when, when the A380 came out. Boeing was looking at a future where passengers would want, passengers want to fly point to point. We want to get on an airplane, fly to our destination, get off and be done with it. That idea of the hub and spoke, really, which was the bread and butter of the 747, where you'd fly to a major airport and then get on a smaller airplane and continue your journey. That idea is, it, it was, it's going away um, in, in a large part because you have an airplane like the 787 because of its efficiency, its range, that it can economically give passengers what they want. Fly from where you start and end at your destination without getting another flight. So that was the direction. That's that's really what happened. And I think a lot of people miss that, that Boeing didn't go for an even bigger jet. Boeing went for point to point with the 787. And that idea, I think, is one out. The, you, you see that these big four-engine commercial jets, and that's what Boeing saw with the 747, that they're eventually going to go away because you have a very efficient model in the twin jet, especially with our 777. When that 777 came out in the 1990s, the writing was on the wall that this airplane is going to continue to grow, and at some point, it will surpass the 747. And that's what we see today. The 777 can carry what the 747 carries. It can perform those missions. It can operate in the same in the same places for our customers, but even greater. This airplane can do it with with thirty percent greater efficiency, and so that's what we're and what we're looking at today is that what our customers want, what people around the world want. They want sustainability. They want to reduce the carbon footprint, and that's really when we look at it. the The efficiency of a twin jet far eclipses those big four engine planes, and that's why the seven forty seven. Well, I won't say it's being retired. It'll fly for a long time, but that's why that's why Boeing is no longer going to be building these airplanes because we're doing what we've always done. We built a better airplane, and that better airplane is the triple seven. So 
That's uh, and that's pretty much what happened to the A380. Is that it? It's a big four-engine jet, and we can get better economy, less fuel burn, a less, uh, far less carbon footprint with a twin jet. And I think that's it. that's there. You have it. That's a great analysis. You know, yeah. I might argue, Mike, not that I know a fraction of what you do, but that trend actually started with the Boeing 767. Oh, you're right. And, and then I remember, <laughs> yeah. and I yeah. remember that plane early in my career and people started flying Chicago to Europe right. and Dallas to Europe and Pittsburgh to Europe. And I remember thinking, wow, what's going to happen to the days of flying to JFK and connecting on the 747? No, you're and you're absolutely right. I mean, I I do go back to the seven six seven because it it uh, Boeing really introduced those fundamental technologies with that airplane. So it's the twin aisle twin jet. It's it has the uh, introduces the glass cockpit, the two crew uh, glass cockpit, the two crew flight deck, and then it also the other thing is that it it brought us e tops at uh, Boeing. Boeing team did all the work that um, and working with the regulators and bringing about these these new rules that allowed a twin jet to fly long distances where it was once the, those those flights were only allowed for three and four engine jets. And so with the 767, you saw those uh, those city pairs over the Atlantic, just an exponential number of, of city pairs open up. And you're absolutely right. That was, and and, may, and it wasn't, people weren't aware of it at the time. Boeing wasn't even aware of it at the time, that that really was the, the moment when we start to see that uh, these big, giant four-engine jets are going to be eclipsed. But when the 777 came out, that's when it became apparent that, uh, yeah, in about 25 years, this, this, uh, these four-engine jets are, are going to be going out of uh, production because this 777 is so efficient. So it, uh, but you're absolutely right. It does go back to the 767. So can you talk about what the safety record of the 74 was? I remember a terrible crash in Japan that yeah. was almost a domestic flight. And of course, in the U.S., we all remember the bombing over Lockerbie. Right. But what was the overall safety record of this plane? For a big airplane, for what it was, it, it's pretty darn good. And uh, there were a number of, uh, I think there were about 50 airplanes that over time have been lost. And maybe about, I'd say maybe about a dozen of those were, were unfortunately had, uh, the airplanes were lost with, uh, with a loss of life. And, uh, but for those, uh, in those accidents, I, Oh, only a, there was a very small number of airplanes that could be that you could point to some design flaw. I think that uh, there was a fuse pin issue with an LL airplane that lost an engine, and of course uh, that uh, that TWA 800 with the uh, the, the uh, center tank explosion. But I think other than that, most of these things that that happened were, like you say, there was terrorism, the Lockerbie. Uh, the, the uh, Korean airline 007 that was shot down by a Russian interceptor, uh, and of course the the most uh, uh, yeah the most this tragic horrific accident was Tenerife, where two 747s collided on the runway. 
So, but uh, when you look back at, at 50 years that this airplane has been in service, it's uh, it's been an and the number of of uh, a number of flights, the number of times, number of airplanes. You know, this one of the best-selling airplanes and uh, commercial jets of all time. When you consider that time and the number of airplanes, it's a pretty amazing safety record. Mm-hmm. So just as just as uh, Joe Sutter, you know, again, you know that 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 was his his commandment that this airplane that had every day they had to start with safety in mind. Uh, and building this airplane, and that really that uh, that many 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 decades ago really changed the culture at Boeing. That uh, no matter what the customers would demand, that safety came first. And so the 747 really is a great example of that. So there have been so many great stories involving the 747. Um, what's what's your favorite one or two? What a couple of the stories that I really find fascinating were in, uh, later on, you know, this, this airplane, the 747, was used for so many different roles. It, it carried the space shuttle. It's, it's used as Air Force One to carry the president. Uh, the NASA uses uh, the SP, uh, the SOFIA, uh, with a telescope. Um, just so many incredible roles. The, the, the uh, Dreamlifter that Boeing uses to fly our 787 parts. And on the military side, Boeing was, uh, had came up with a couple of ideas there uh, early at, back in the 1980s during the Cold War, the, the Air Force was, was looking for uh, an airplane to carry cruise missiles. And uh, they ultimately the B-1 bomber uh, came out and was that airplane. But Boeing offered up a 747 that had something like six rotary launchers inside its fuselage and carried a hundred cruise missiles. Just amazing. And then the other one that uh, I think was really, uh, really interesting is if, if we go back to the 1930s, uh, the United States Navy had a couple of dirigibles, the, the uh, Macon and the Akron, I believe they were. And they would carry uh, these little biplane fighters, these Curtis Sparrowhawks. They would had hooks outside and the, the biplanes could hook up and on there. And so the, this dirigible actually was kind of an aircraft carrier. Well, jumping up into the end of the 19, well, it's late 70s, 80s, Boeing had the idea of turning a 747 into a similar aircraft carrier. Uh, Boeing had designed a micro fighter, a small, very small fighter jet. And then these were kept inside a 747, again, on rotary launchers that, that could drop out at the bottom of a 747. And they, had, they could carry an entire squadron of these little micro fighters. So I think that was, I've always found that fascinating, the 747 aircraft carrier. So, <laughs> and just overall, the creativity over the years of, of these designers who constantly looked at this airplane and how it could be modified, uh, how it could be reused, what, what uh, all these different types of uses. And, and while there wasn't, those military uses didn't, uh, didn't always come to fruition, what did happen though, is through, through constant upgrade and uh, adding new technology to this airplane and improving it constantly, that really gave this longevity to this airplane, that it was constantly upgraded, constantly modified. 
and uh, it, it's an airplane that was built to last. And you look at look back at the what you know what what do you have in in your life that's that's fifty years old that has been going on for that long, right? Uh, uh, that uh, you know, when we look at our cars, if we have a car that's been around that long, it is a classic car, and we don't drive it that much. But this airplane has been around that long, so I think that's really a tribute to that that uh, that constant constant design, that constant attention to making this airplane better throughout the decades. Mike, this has just been fantastic. Before we let you go, do you want to end with any reflection about the empty assembly line yeah. and factory? I imagine at some point it might be retooled for a new plane, but now it's got to be sad. Yeah, that's, you know, that was the thing for uh at the rollout of the very last airplane that, that just dawned on, on me as that as that beautiful 747-8 was coming out of the coming out uh, passing through the doors of the factory <laughs> and looking back into that giant hangar that giant assembly area that's now empty and thinking that for 50 years there has been a 747 in this building that the building was built while the first 747 was being assembled. So it's always been there. And that, just thinking that at that moment, it, oh my, I just, you know, the, the tears started to flow and uh, it just, it, it's a very difficult moment to look in there and see that empty, that empty space where the 747 should be. It's always been there. My entire career at Boeing, there has been a 747 in that factory and now it's no longer true. But there'll be something to take its place. And that's, that's the one thing that, you know, it's a solemn moment, but it's not a terrible moment because there'll be something. That's, that's the history of this company, of the Boeing company, that there's always something better. And that'll be true for the future of, of the Everett side and for the Boeing company, that we're going to make something better. And it'll be pretty amazing. Mm. Well, Michael, can't thank you enough. This has been it's so fascinating. Uh, you know, the delivery of the of the last seven forty seven to to Atlas Air. It, it's it's sad, uh, and yet it's very sweet. I think at the at the same time, um, this airplane uh, accomplished so much and embodies so much of aviation history. I was really struck as you were you were talking about all the different creative things how. Uh, for so many of us, this airplane sparked imagination um, and, uh, it, and the love that people felt for it from their first flight on it to their last. Um, and so it's, it's been wonderful to, to remember and, and reflect and, uh, and really appreciate um, the great airplane uh, that it is. Thank you very much for being with us. And we'll be right back with more on Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by TheAirchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. TheAirchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. What a great talk with Michael Lombardi. I sure learned a lot. I hope all of you did too. 
Our sponsors make Airlines Confidential possible, and we're very grateful for their support. We want to thank our sponsor, Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company. Seabury Securities' widely respected team has been advising aviation clients around the world for more than 25 years. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. Thanks, Ben. Our question this week comes from Ren from North Carolina. Ren says, I discovered your podcast around a year ago and haven't missed an episode. Airlines Confidential is one of my favorites for staying informed on current events in the industry. I'm a pilot at a U.S. regional airline. Pilot staffing at the regionals is a hot topic, and I have a few observations. I noticed the language used to describe this has pivoted from pilot shortage to captain shortage, which is a more accurate description of the staffing problem at regionals today. Several regionals have slowed or even paused hiring of new candidates as their pilot groups have become lopsided, and these new hire first officers don't have captains to fly with. Regionals have attempted to stem the attrition with significant pay increases, bonuses, and flow to mainline programs. These have helped. However, it is clear there is still a serious problem retaining pilots and the obvious issue is seniority. Regionals are full of young pilots trying to advance their career. Building long-term seniority at a legacy airline ranks above short-term pay, and many will leave the regionals and their bonus programs behind at the first opportunity to grab a seniority number at a legacy airline. It appears the high level of pilot retirements at legacy carriers that is driving attrition at the regionals is going to continue for several more years. With this in mind, do you foresee any mainline carriers doing away with the regional model altogether, buying the regional aircraft and bringing those pilots in-house? In my opinion, Ren says, this would bring a swift end to the regional pilot staffing crisis as new hire regional pilots would be almost certain to stay with that carrier for their career instead of leaving for a competitor at the first opportunity. Ben, I thought this was fascinating, and I'm curious what you think. Well, I think Ren should be a spokesman for the regional industry, because I can't imagine a more cohesive sort of argument that accurately describes both both the problem and the way to potentially address the problem. I think this is great, Ren, and I agree with you around the way you formed the the problem statement here. I think there's a couple things. Big hubs work because they have feed, and it's hard to serve every market with sort of a minimum of a 130 or 150 seat plane and make it work. That's why the regionals have been so effective in bringing smaller and maybe smaller mid-sized cities more efficiently into the hub, connecting to the world and such. There's a couple things around that. You ask if a mainline carrier will get rid of the regionals altogether. I don't think that's likely in the next five years or so. But I do think it's possible that they will shrink their dependency on the regionals 
in two ways. One, not that long ago, you saw United Airlines place a huge order for 270 airplanes, and they talked about many of those airplanes replacing regional flying. So United's clearly thinking that for some piece of their regional feed, they can put it on 737-size airplanes. Maybe there won't be six flights a day to the city on a regional, but three flights a day on a 737, for example. So I think more replacement of regionals with bigger jets is happening. United's clearly setting that trend. For shorter flights, we had a real interesting guy on talking about his company Landline that's providing bus service for shorter flights where the buses can drive maybe two to three hours, provide a good customer service, but do it significantly cheaper than flying a regional jet that distance. So at the short end, some regional flying is going to be replaced by motor coaches. At the big end, they're going to be replaced by A319s, A320s, 737s. But there's still going to be a range for sort of a 90-seat airplane. And the question is, does that become a mainline airplane for the big carriers or does it stay in a separate regional company that maybe has economics that don't look that different from the main line or maybe assigns the seniority number when they join the regional? So I think there's a couple things around what you're saying, Ren. You're right about the problem. The industry is coming at this in a couple different ways. I think it's it's interesting. Uh, Delta maybe sort of the camel under the, the camel's nose under the tent here um, with the A220. So Delta's already brought a hundred seat airplane um, into mainline, and and as you say, has been pretty aggressive about replacing regional feed with mainline flights. Sometimes fewer uh, a day, but you know people would rather be on larger airplanes, mainline airplanes. Um, than regional airplanes. And so there is a customer preference issue here as well. But I agree, it's a, it's a creative thing to think about, well, why doesn't the, the main line just run the regional airplanes, um, expand the pilot ranks? Uh, everybody flying for main line would have a seniority number. And, and I, you, know, you totally see that with pilots. Um, the seniority number means everything. Uh, and so the quicker they can get that number, um, the happier they are, the better off they are career-wise. Um, I think you might see more of this, um, but I do think it would, it would take time. It would certainly take renegotiating union contracts. And, uh, you know, that's something that uh, management's often uh, reluctant to get into when they don't have to, because it can take a long time and uh, it's going to mean everybody's going to get a raise uh, to, to win agreement um, with it. A fascinating question, Ren. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, really interesting issue for, uh, for us to talk about in the future as well. All right, Scott. This one is from Joe from Victorville. And he says, hi, guys, like the show. You both have routinely talked about Delta's older fleet of aircraft. 
I want to point out Delta is not the airline which has the so-called older fleet. It is United. If Joe's from Victorville, home of one of the big desert aircraft storage and paint facilities, he knows his aircraft indeed. Joe lists the average age of each aircraft Delta flies, but doesn't tally an average. So I checked the 10K file last year for 2021, and it showed the average age for Delta at 14 years. United's 10K filed at the same time showed 16.5 years. So Joe is right. The days of Delta flying old and Northwest DC-9s is long gone. Delta no longer has the oldest fleet. American, by the way, was 11.3 years old on average. So Scott, I'm the one who needs to be called on the carpet for this, I think. (laughs) Well, that that may be, Ben, but I've said it too. And Joe's note was uh, eye-opening for me as well. I went back and, and looked, and, and the, the last time Delta flew a DC-9 was 2014. Uh, and the last time Delta flew an MD-88 uh, was, the, was 2020. Um, and I think the pandemic has really uh, driven retirements of older airplanes and kind of upset our notions of who's got an old fleet and who's got a young fleet. Um, It's been really interesting, but the pandemic has reset airline fleets in such a way that our old assumptions aren't valid. So kudos to Joe for pointing this out. Absolutely. And I even did that earlier in this show when we were talking about Delta being on time. So they're doing it with a younger fleet. Even more kudos to Delta. All right. And with all those kudos, thanks, Ben, and uh, look forward to talking more next week on Airlines Confidential. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.